Hi, I'm Simone W. Johnson-Smith, and welcome to the Immigrant Experience in America. Are you a professional new to the United States and struggling to monetize the expertise you brought across the seas? Are you feeling misunderstood and out of touch because you're struggling to understand the unstated rules of the American culture? Each week, we'll take an in-depth look at the positive contributions immigrants are making to the American culture, marketplace, and life. Our intention is to serve as a bridge from your culture to the American culture, giving you a roadmap of tools and the language to understand the unstated rules of the American culture. Let's get started. Thank you for joining us again on another episode of the Immigrant Experience in America, where we amplify and humanize the experiences of immigrants in the United States and around the world. We are happy to bring you another episode today with Aditi Paul. Welcome to the show. Oh, thank you so much for having me, Simone. I'm so excited to have this conversation with you and be a part of this amazing podcast that you have launched and created the space for all of us immigrants. So if you don't mind, Aditi, letting us know a bit about yourself, whether personally or professionally, how we met and what we're here doing today. Well, the first thing I will tell your listeners is to not Google me, because if you Google my name, my full name is Aditi Paul, you will find Google results, which will show you that I am a Bollywood singer. And I was also the runner up for Indian Idol. That Aditi Paul, unfortunately, is not me. So um, I, I will start by saying who I am not, and then moving on to who I am. I'm, I'm far less exciting than that. But my name is uh, Aditi Paul. I came, moved to the US uh, 12 years before 2010, August, as a PhD student, not because I was so determined to, to study. I wanted to quit school after 12th grade. So that should tell you something about me. But I came here for my PhD on the insistence of my sister, who was already in the US. She got married to a guy who was already here. He's my brother-in-law. Uh, they have two beautiful children right now. But forget about the 44th, 45th, or any precedent of the United States. The biggest proponent of the U.S. was my sister because she sold me this country. She said, you have to come here. The, the professors are great. They actually respond to your emails and treat you as human beings. Like, that's great. I've never had that feeling before. <laughs> so <laughs> I was like, cool, I'll, I'll come to this country. I'll get a Ph.D. I applied for a Ph.D. thanks to my sister. She gave me the foresight. And, and this is why I'm so excited about the work that I'm doing right now, which I'll get to. She shared the foresight with me that, hey, get a PhD, that way you don't have to break bank and you get a stipend and it helps you for your immigration purposes. I didn't understand what she meant, particularly at that time. Didn't really care because I had a valid F1. So I came to this country, it was all good. And I moved universities. I went to, uh, I started my journey in Ohio, finished it up in Michigan, got my PhD in communication and media studies. And then in 2015, I moved to New York City as a tenure track professor teaching at a private university in, in Manhattan. And from there on, I realized the detriment of my place of birth in the landscape of U.S. immigration because I understood that 
It was near to impossible or almost impossible, if not completely impossible for me to secure a green card. And I woke up to that harsh reality seven years after I had been in this country because I didn't know any better before that. I knew that, hey, I got my work visa, I got my authorization to get a green card, but I didn't realize that the wait time to get that green card in hand currently is 151 years, according to Cato, C-A-T-O. You can look it up. I'm not even exaggerating. That's, a, that's incredible. I mean, it's, when I hear you say that, I'm like, my my jaw drops. And I'm it's like, just, what? It's ridiculous. And that's when I realized that I had to upgrade myself from employment-based green card category two to employment-based green card category one. And for the uninitiated, if you haven't looked at the employment-based green card category one or first preference, one of the humble requirements, like it's it's so easy to satisfy that requirement. You have to have a Nobel Prize because we all have Nobel Prizes just lying in our cupboard. Like, I use, excuse me, U.S. immigration, just hold up. But that's what you need to get your green card through the employment-based first preference. And then the requirements go on to say that, well, if you don't have a Nobel Prize or an Emmy or an Oscar, can you then show your expertise through these 10 other criteria? And that's when I started diligently building my profile. This is after I had secured a job as a professor, after I had gotten my PhD, because the immigration system was telling me, after all of this, I'm still not enough. And I was on that struggle bus for three years. And all of that culminated in me getting my green card in hand after 12 years in the May of uh, 2022. So that's my immigration story in a nutshell. Oh, your sister convinced you to come. You Mm -hmm. shared something very interesting about the landscape of India. Give us a sense for what life is like there, what part of the country you're from. Sounds like you did your undergraduate and probably master's and then you transition into a PhD program. What is it like studying in India and what's the competition like? Give us a sense for what that landscape was like as you made that decision to come over. India is a big ass country with a billion people. Like we are talking a billion. It's really hard to stand out when you are a part of a billion. And one of the ways you can stand out is through educational prowess. How good are you intellectually? And education to that end becomes a solution for upward mobility, just progress in life in general. Add to that the idea that it is also a very patriarchal society. Our gender norms are very, very steep for women to make their mark in a world that is created by and sustained by male figures. One of the, if not the way to break out of that system or make a mark in that system is education. So when I grew up or as my maturity increased, I realized that these stories that I used to hear to convince myself that I don't need any education do not apply to me. So for example, everybody gives these examples, right? Like, oh, Bill Gates dropped out of yada yada and Mark Zuckerberg dropped out of Stanford or Harvard and now they are billionaires. 
well, they're also white and they're also men. Like, can I pull that off? I don't think so. For me to enter a room and demand believability, demand space, nobody is going to give that to me. That's just the harsh reality. So for me, an education, at least for a female child in India, education is essential, is essential for financial stability, for societal security, everything. I got to understand that progressively. Now, this is my wise brain speaking to you. I was feral back in the day. I was like, I don't like studying. Like, how do I get out of this? <laughs> I, I got my bachelor's in computer science, hated every moment of it, but got good grades because I knew that that's the only saving grace and Hail Mary that would keep me in my house. Else my parents are, you know, spanking me and, and asking me to leave home. Uh, so so that was my survival strategy, just get good grades. But what happens with the US system when you're trying to move away from India and move to the US, the US at that time did not recognize three-year bachelor's degrees. So because the bachelor's degrees in the US are four years, so if you're getting yours in three, then it doesn't transfer over. So a lot of students invariably get their master's. So that's why I enrolled in a master's in computer science program. But I was very well aware that computer science is not where my future was. I was in love with the field of communication. I still am. I love human communication. I love the media. I love performative arts. That's where my heart is. So when I moved to the US, more than getting a US degree, it was for me to get finally get a shot at studying something that I truly, truly desired. I thought I was going to study something, but then I studied something completely different because getting a bachelor's in communication and a master's in communication, it's completely different than getting a PhD in communication. In the first instances, you're studying cool shit, right? Like you're studying about the media and you're studying about social media, but in your PhD, you're producing knowledge, which is a completely different skill set that I was not even aware of because I had never done research. I had never studied social science. I did not know what AP or plagiarism even were. But here I am starting a PhD program. So that's how my progression went from going to India to the US. It was part me living my passion and part me making sure that I still had education on my side because that's a sure shot guarantee for you to have some sort of footing in a patriarchal society like India if I had to go back. You said something also intriguing on our last conversation that I have a four-year-old and I started her out in the Montessori education because I felt like that was closest to organic learning that I could get based on my knowledge at the time, right? So I just wanted her to organically just experience life in the world. And I so did not want to pass on whatever I had been indoctrinated or gotten from this world. I wanted her to just come and experience life and not lose herself in it, right? Or basically carry on whatever it is I didn't want to carry on in the next generation. Mm -hmm. So, but you mentioned something that Montessori is pretty big in India. And then even on top of that, you're taking like extra credits and stuff like that just oh, to yeah. even be able to compete. Can you give us a little bit of that information? Yeah. When I see my nieces and nephew, like this is how you realize that 
the, your, you spend your 20s trying desperately to not be like your parents only to come to your 30s to be exactly like them and not just the parent you any parent it's the parent that you don't want to be i am totally like my dad i look at my nieces and nephews and i'm like what kind of rabid lifestyle are you living like how is your nose not in the books you know how are you coming home and playing outside with a football what that was not warranted to me that is not a childhood i'm familiar with it has gotten even more intense in terms of competition because first of all you're a billion people so from the day you're born you're assessed based on people around you. So I was assessed based on how better am I doing from the rest of the kids in class. Competition is steep and we are fighting for very limited means, right? So there are institutions like the Indian Institute of Technology, the Indian Institute of Management. These are high stake universities where only like 0.5% or 2% of college students or the students of India get through. And those are the emblems of success. Like once you get there, you're literally like walking right next to Jesus on water. Like you're looked that way in, in society. So you start prepping for getting into those schools since you are a child. So it's not an aberration to see a two or three-year-old in India going to Montessori school or like day school and then coming back and their uh, parents bringing in private tutors to teach them extra skills. And this starts when we are children, like babies, babies, because there's no time to waste. And that goes on till 12th grade and beyond. You're always trying to do everything that you do in class and then some. So we don't come home and like play. We come home, we eat, we sleep, we go right back into private tuition classes where we are trying to get better and, and get ahead of the crowd. I understand. And I recently heard some statistics that they're projecting that India is supposed to be the most populous country here soon. Mm -hmm. Yeah, it's uh, India is surpassing China as the country that sends the most number of international students. I used to hear about this, but living here in the U.S., you definitely see that this is a global marketplace. You're competing not just your little country or in your space, a huge country, but you know, it's even bigger here. Does it feel bigger here when you're competing versus like what you were considering would have been your life had you stayed back there? It's so much easier over here. When I tell you we go through trial by fire, we go through trial by fire. And this is something that I had to actively unlearn, not as a student, but as a professor because I was of that mentality for the longest time that if I have suffered, you have to suffer too, right? So when students messaged me or emailed me saying that, dear professor, I missed this exam. I'm like, well, you're slacking, right? No points for you with zero empathy for them because that's what we went through. There are stories on stories students who are not allowed to take a test because they did not bring their ID card. Can you believe that? That's the lived reality of students in India, where I have my friends who were admitted 
to the hospital and then they had to go back to school to take a test and then the principal or the teachers did not allow them to take the test because they missed classes knowing full well that they were hospitalized that is the ruthless state of indian students in india that's the kind of training we get we are in the military schools <laughs> in india it's very 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 strict so you come to the us for multiple reasons just today i hosted a poll on linkedin asking people that hey when you move to the us for higher education it's not always for academic reasons there are other reasons that don't meet the eye one of them is personal freedom one of them is career change because in the us compared to india where if you are getting your degree in chemistry or only learning about chemistry but over here a chemistry major is taking a history minor like how does that even make sense so in america compared to india interdisciplinary education is still skewing on the higher side it's emerging in india but if you have to break out from that traditional mold us becomes a good recluse one of the major reasons for which indian students look to america i can think of three one of them is personal freedom right when we are back home we are always with our family we live with our family the only way a lot of us could break away from that sheltered life is moving thousands of miles away and finally finding a life of their own so that is one major reason the other reason is united states you know if you look at universities like penn state if you look at universities like michigan state or university of michigan or nyu they are not the ivy leagues but they are reputable universities because of the population because of the egregious tuition whatever it is there is more space for students to get a bachelor's in penn state versus the iits of india right so if a person who could not stand out in india because they could not get into iit now gets into penn state whose ranking is more than iit where will this person go this person will of right. course go to penn state right yeah, because it was easier to get into penn state and you're beating the competition right so it's a win win for them all you have to do is cough up the money that's where financial privilege comes into play so one of them is personal freedom one of them is meeting the crowd by getting into a more elite university without having to do that much and number 3 is to honestly be valued as students and i say this knowing full well and from a position of authority because i have been a student in india to know how i was treated as a student and i have been a professor in america knowing how i treated my students I had to go through a lot of unlearning to see the value in my students to not tear them down but build them up and that is a behavior that is an attitude that is alien to a lot of indian students and we are yearning for that and unfortunately since we don't get that back home we come to the us where we get it It's funny you're underlying a topic that I've been covering kind of intermittently throughout my interviews. As I've been here now, I'm now a hybrid of 
you know, I'm partly American, partly Jamaican. I find that when people come from communal cultures or high context cultures, mm-hmm. the U.S. is the place where a lot of healing and freedom actually takes place, Absolutely. right? And so I recognize the healthiness of <laughs> the American base. Mm-hmm. Even on the other side, there's unhealthiness in that, you know, that we yeah. have to learn to balance. So I get what you're saying. Because there's a lot of things that take place in high context cultures that when you are able to break away, when you finally are here in the American space and living and you get that freedom to really achieve and earn for yourself, you're able to then lead a different life of which you might not have otherwise been able to in a high context culture overseas. So absolutely, um, completely get that. So you came over with the intent, okay, I'm going to study then you realize, wow, this is going to take me way longer. Help us understand what's the process of an F1 student coming over into the U.S.? Like, what's the process like, you know, getting that visa, Mm. the I-20, all of it. So people who are thinking of going on this path have a sense of what the reality is. I'll tell you this. It doesn't feel real until you've come to the U.S. Because every single turn that you take in this journey you're just waiting to be rejected. For example, when you take your GRE, I remember it like yesterday after taking my GRE, calling my parents and crying to them because I thought that my GRE score was not good enough for me to get an admit in my dream university over here because I was comparing it. Like I said, we all we were born with comparisons. I was comparing my GRE score to my friend. Back in the day, I had like an 82% and my friend had like a 97. I'm like, oh my God, I'm going to get rejected didn't get rejected. That was good enough. Same for TOEFL, test of English as a foreign language. Once you clear that, now you apply to universities, an option of being rejected from there. Once your university accepts you but doesn't give you funding, so you get rejected over there. Once you get funding, now your university has to send the I-20. Is there going to be a delay in sending that? Will you have mistakes? Yada, yada. Once you get that I-20, then you apply for your F-1. I am not even going to get into the conversation of what are the things you need for applying for F-1. One, I've forgotten. And the reason I've forgotten is because it's traumatic. It is absolutely traumatic because now you have to give them all evidences like your GRE score and TOEFL. Together with that, you have to take out financial documents and statements saying that you can sustain yourself in the U.S. if you lose scholarship. So you have to show the USCIS officer money. Not only that, you also have to demonstrate to the USCIS officer that you have all the intention of coming back. Now, if you have to show that you have an intention of coming back, why do you have an intention? So people have shown documents like, I have my dad's business over here. I have land back home. So you have to show documentation for each and every one of those aspects to then get an approval from the uh, USCIS officer to get your F1. Even when you get your F1, will you be admitted to the U.S. once you show all those documents to the USCIS officer or the Homeland Security officer sitting in the port of entry? So many 
ways you can get rejected and so many instances you can get rejected it truly doesn't feel real unless you have made it to the university and you're sitting in that chair during your international student orientation that's when it feels real i'm thinking it's you are meaning the us embassy overseas right the visa officer who does the interview and then mm-hmm. cbp once you can actually turn you around when you get to the airport right they have the final decision yeah whether yeah. you come in or not okay so what was it like then did you have did you have boarding on campus or did you stay with your sister luckily you had family a lot of people don't have any connection they come with nothing i truly was lucky to have my sister also it was not because i wanted to live by my sister my dad and my parents were it's okay i'm going to send you a thousand like you're going to go a thousand miles away but at least stay closer to your sister like have some semblance of family so i applied to like five universities in a 60 mile radius from my sister knowing full well that she will do my laundry and she will cook for me so <laughs> i took full advantage of that and she delivered my brother in law also cooked for me by the way so i took full advantage of that they were there so i had a place to stay i went to the us a month before before my school started stayed with them then they helped me move into my first 350 square feet apartment in Bowling Green Ohio it was really nice because the international student experience is so unique if you divorce it from the immigration hassles that we go through i wish everybody has an international student experience because you learn so much about yourself and there is something very unique about having an international student experience in in the US because the US is such a big melting pot i am not proud of this i might get canceled on the internet too but <laughs> i truly this is what actually happened ah uh, man should i say it maybe i'll say it i met this guy during international orientation and he said he's from madagascar i truly thought he was joking because i thought madagascar is just a disney movie i'm like come on like do you see that lion is the lion your friend and he had the most perplexed emotion on his face i'm like it's a real country i still carry it in my heart to this day and nothing can take that shame away <laughs> from me that not knowing that madagascar is a real country just to demonstrate that that's the richness of experience that being an international student in the us gave me and i'm not even talking about the phd and the research and everything these are just life experiences that you have as an international student that just helps you grow and mature and step way out of your comfort zone that you would have ever imagined. I was on campus with some other students who came over as F1 and I saw some of the, you know, the adjustments that they had to make being away from family. Some of them came home with me on holidays to have dinner with our family. My cousins brought some of them home oh, with us. So they spent Yeah because we know that they didn't have family here and my family such had always open door we could bring our friends and they would come and have christmas dinner or thanksgiving dinner they would just blend in with the rest of all of us cousins and so no i get it and we'll get to this part of the conversation of the struggle to then transition from being that f1 over to finding employment and making this a permanent uh, opportunity for you so you came in with a goal to study 
How did you adjust then in the first few months of school, first few years? Was there anything about the culture that you found shocking? You know, I had such an incredible start to my international student experience because I came into Bowling Green State University. It's a small university in smallish university in Ohio. And my cohort, the, the cohort with which I came in, it also had these exchange students from Europe. When I tell you, they were so fun. I had so much fun with them because they had no intention of studying. They were there to party. They <laughs> And I'm like, this is great. So I, the first thing that I did was become friends with them and get invited to their house parties. It was such a joy for me to leave home and pregame at like 11 and then come back home at four or five. Oh, the twenties energy, right? Where you could just get over a hangover. But I had so much fun because I'd never had that when I was home. I always had to come back home by 10 p.m. Not to say that my parents were like, you know, you can do this or you can do that. They were not like that. But I also didn't want to break the peace at home. So I, I always came back. I didn't like stay over or like go to a party or go to the clubs at 12. But that's the first time that I was doing that in my life. And I was 23 years old. That too with European exchange students. Again, when I tell you how fun that was, it is NSFW, but I, I hope you catch my drift. So it was really good uh, on that front. In terms of studying, man, I got a false sense of confidence where I thought, look at me, God's gift to earth. Look at me just seamlessly transitioning from computer science into communication and acing all these tests. Like I am born to shine. And that was how I felt when I was in Bowling Green. And then I knew that I was not going to graduate from Bowling Green because Bowling Green was too small for me and I didn't find a good fit. So the moment I stepped foot in Bowling Green, I also aggressively started applying to other universities because I wanted to transfer out. One of my mentors, my senior PhD students, she said that, you know, PhD is like a pigeonhole. You better be comfortable where you are. So I'm like, okay, this is good advice. Let me hustle to get into a university that I would be really proud from graduating. So that's how I landed up in Michigan State. Michigan State University does not play around. It is the West Point of PhD in communication. It is serious business. And I found myself from a hundred to the negative. I was not matching up to the expectations of my professors. I was not at the same level of performance as my peers who had already gotten their masters in communication, who already knew how to write papers, who already knew statistics. I was just a mess, a complete mess. And it was an uphill climb for me. And I talk about this in my LinkedIn as well, where I got an ultimatum that my graduate director called me in his office in my third year of my PhD in Michigan State and said that, listen, the whole faculty has decided to suspend you from the program. You're not going to be graduating from Michigan State. You're not mature enough. Your research has not matured enough. And you cannot be carrying the name of Michigan State. Like this is not who our typical graduate is. Because at that time, Michigan State University was I think the top communication program, and they are very, very rigorous. So I had three months to turn things around. And when I tell you the way I worked for those three months, I had never 
worked in my life before. And there was an instance of divine providence happening in that three months as well that not only kept me in the program, but put me as a student spotlight uh, at Michigan State University for a hot second. And needless to say, you made it, right? You you shined and you convinced them, yes, I'm worthy of this uh, PhD. Yeah. yeah. And then what next after those, uh, how many years was that? Was that two, four years? years. I graduated in four years because I'm like, I am GTFOing from here, my friend, not staying here. So I started applying for jobs soon after this ultimatum was over because that was also the time that I was, I only had one more year. And usually what happens is uh, a PhD will extend the money that they give you, your, your assistantship. Like if you had your assistantship for four years and you haven't really completed it, the university or the department can extend it. But I had burned so many bridges at the, at the program, I was not in a position to ask for any extension. So I knew that even if I was reinstated in the program, I only had another year. And trust me when I tell you, Simone, when I look back, I shudder at the thought of how naive I was at that time because... I didn't know or I didn't fully grasp the idea that if I don't get this job, I'm out of this country. And getting professorship jobs, that too is an international, that too in the social sciences, forget about tenure track is hard work. It's slim pickings. It's it's very, very low. But praise to God, honestly, I had one publication to my name no conference papers, but that one publication had 90 media mentions. It went viral. So I was quoted in the Washington Post, Time Magazine interviewed me. All of these big things happened from that one paper. Because of that one paper and because of the nature of my research, not only did I get a professorship job, it was tenure track and in New York City, which was pretty freaking cool. Uh, when it happened, especially for a student who was told she was not good enough to get a PhD. Join us next time for part two of this episode. Tune in next week for another episode of The Immigrant Experience in America. As this is a new podcast, we welcome any and all support. If you have not done so already, Subscribe on the Apple Podcast app, Google Podcast app, Spotify, Stitcher, or wherever you listen. You can also support us by completing a five-star rating and review and sharing our podcast with your friends, family, and circle of influence. <laughs>